Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. A reminder that you can subscribe to the show by clicking on the subscribe via email button on the left-hand side of your screen. And then every time I upload a new show, you will be notified in your inbox. And that's the only email you'll receive. I'm sitting at the Warwick University Investment Forum and I just listened to an excellent presentation by author, columnist and investor Jonathan Davis. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for coming on and doing an interview. Um, The subject of your presentation was what makes a good investor? And then you went on to look at Warren Buffett and uh, uh, Sir Anthony Bolton and uh, John Templeton. So let's start with that. What makes a good investor? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on your show. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Um, Of course, there isn't one simple answer, but I can uh, maybe try and uh, boil it down in in, in a few sentences. Um, I got interested in in what makes successful professional investors uh, perform the way they do about 25 years ago, and I spent a long time looking at the careers of people like Buffett and Sir John Templeton and uh, and Anthony Bolton. I've written books on that subject um, because it seemed it struck me very much that at the time the we were told by academics that uh, beating the market is very difficult, which it is, but that there have been a number of uh, exceptional individuals who have managed to not only to beat the market consistently over time, long periods of time, but to do so in some cases with uh, less risk than uh, uh, than the market itself, which is uh, something that in theory should not happen. So uh, that was my starting point. I looked at the evidence of uh, some of these great investors uh, to see if there was anything you could actually learn that was useful about, about what it takes to be a great investor. And... Um, a lot of data I could go through, but in, in essence, what I what I think I'm saying is that you need a method which is um, uh, consistent with itself, uh, is not done in exactly the same way as a conventional uh, practice would have you do it, and it does require some exceptional uh, human qualities, particularly temperament and character, that uh, not all of us, unfortunately, uh, possess. Yeah, temperament is the big one because... Uh, Often it's it's easy to it's easy to theorise it's easy to predict which way uh, the, which direction a market is going to go on to, to go in but it's 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 one thing seeing it another putting it into practice. It certainly is, and I think it's partly a question of uh, discipline, uh, making sure that you're asking the right questions at the right time, but then actually having the ability to to, uh, to zone out all the kind of noise, all the emotional reactions you might have to something. Um, and to act precipitously and decisively as a result of that. For example, I mean, a good example, um, perhaps from uh, John Templeton's career, and some people might find this a little um, uh, uncomfortable, but it's uh, it's what happened. You know, when the uh, the Bhopal disaster happened in India, when that uh, remember that gas yeah. plant blew up and uh, injured a lot of people, um, the share price of the company that uh, was responsible for that plant, Union Carbide, tanked. Understandably, there was a kind of instant reaction to that news. No one knew what the liabilities were going to be. No one knew what a, whether it was a, a good thing or a bad thing. But he was um, intrigued enough to ask the question of his, uh, his assistant, 
well, you know, let's go and look at the numbers of Union Carbide and see whether that will become an investment opportunity. Now, that's not, uh, to be honest, a normal human reaction to news of that kind. Similarly with, uh, with um, you know, with 9-11 or with the Japanese nuclear disaster this year, you've got to have so focused on your investment discipline that you're prepared to look at things that other people are still having natural emotional reactions to. I was going to say a comparison to that might be investing in uh, uranium now or in uh, some kind of nuclear uh, plant building company. Yes, I mean the world is always full of opportunities. Um, one of the things that uh, John Templeton said was, you know, people always ask me where's the best place to, to invest, you know, and, and my answer always is, well, where the news is bad. You've got to look where there's maximum pessimism, and there, that's where you're going to find the bargains as a matter of definition, because things are cheap for a reason, and they're cheap for a reason because people have got this uh, um, emotional response to what they've read in the newspapers. Germany in 1945, one of the great investment opportunities. Yes, well, there'll be a lot of opportunities in history, which uh, perhaps um, you would not have uh, <laughs> you would not have appreciated at the time, unless you were that kind of ice cold individual, if you like. It has to be a, you've got to have a temperament of, a, of an ice cool individual, not only to to make the decision to look at something like that, but then to actually have the courage to act on it when everybody else is telling you that the world is about to end. Lots of examples through history. Um, the great investors tend to have that ability to do that. There's a, a company I know actually called Lydian International, who uh, listed in Canada, run by an Aussie called Tim Coughlin. Tim Coughlin, who I've actually interviewed on this program, and uh, what he does is is he uh, he he's a, an exploration geologist, and he specialises in going into countries that have recently come out of a war and uh, starting to explore for mineral assets. And he's made a huge gold discovery in uh, one in Kosovo and one in Armenia recently. So that would kind of back up what you're saying. Absolutely. I mean, another guy who I know quite well is uh, Jim Rogers, uh, you know, who sort of travel around the world looking for strange things. And in his books, I mean, he talks about some of the things. He, I remember him talking about Peru, you know, about uh, about 15 years ago when the terrorists were still blowing up pipelines and things. Yeah. And he, his point was, and he's also, you know, mentioned Zimbabwe and places like that, or even now Myanmar. He's quite interested in Myanmar because you can see the potential for a for a, a dramatic kind of regime change, if you like, which is by definition going to create investment opportunities. But, of course, if you don't go and look there, you're not, you're not going to find the answer. And I think while most people would say that um, uh, I think the key point here is that most people, when they talk about risk, they talk about perceptions of, of, of what might go wrong. They talk about political risk. They talk about economic risk. Um, I think what the great investors do is they look at risk in a completely different way, which is they say, what is what am I being offered by way of a potential reward if things change? And what is actually how much money am I actually putting up at risk for that kind of bet? And um, Buffett's uh, business partner, Charlie Munger, has a, has a very good analogy. He talks about um, the way that people bet on the horse races uh, in, a, in a kind of pari-mutual system, uh, like the tote. And the point there is that, you know, that the tote just tells you what everybody else is betting. The, the odds are set by the market, if you like, because they just add up all the bets and then they look at the prices and adjust them accordingly. Now, what you should do as a, as a, as a punter on the horses, what the most successful punters do is... You wait for the very good opportunity where the risk-reward is very much in your favor. And that is the Buffett approach. I'm not going to do anything. I don't have to invest in anything. I'm not going to do anything until I can see an opportunity where the risk-reward ratio is very much in my favor. And if that happens to be in Peru, uh, which it probably won't be in his case, but if it happens to be in Peru, so be it. It's all a question of odds. Uh, what, am I, what am I putting at risk and what am I going to get back?
and which requires in some cases a lot of patience you've got to be prepared to sit in cash for long periods i guess yes and i i think the the other answer to that is you you have to not be an institutional investor basically where you've got people pressing you know looking at your performance on a weekly monthly quarterly yearly basis looking at how far you've deviated from some from some benchmark or index or who have some kind of uh, concern about the overall risk level of the firm. You can't do it that way. It doesn't work that way because that's not how the world works. If you really want to beat the market, you've got to act in an unconstrained way and be free to do that. And I think the genius of people like Buffett and Templeton, to a lesser extent, uh, people like Anthony Bolton, is they manage to create an environment in which they can do what their instincts and what their, what their whole talent base, their whole skill base allows them to do best, better than anybody else. And that really is the secret. Create the vehicle that will allow you to do what you're really, really good at. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about some of the methods. Let's talk about Anthony Bolton um, for a moment. I mean, he, he's very fond of charts, as we know, and I, I'm crazy about charts. But but for him to have looked at charts at the time he was looking at charts, when th- that was still considered extremely unconventional. Yes, that's true. I think that has to be said. I mean, he works for Fidelity. He works for uh, he works for Fidelity, and Fidelity. Uh, Ned Johnson in the states has always had a. Uh, at Fidelity's head office, they always have this big chart room where he's always been interested in charts. And so if you are a fund manager at Fidelity, you can go into their chart room and you can see a chart of everything. It's all pinned up on the wall, and you can look at that. So I think that was one reason why he did look at charts. But the second was that actually it worked for him. It wasn't the thing that made the decisions for him, but it very much helped him in terms of timing his decision, his buy and selling decisions, because they, they show the pattern of where people, where the market is, if you like. And he used that very effectively to time his buying and selling decisions. Now, you, you said that it worked for him. Uh, that was another interesting thing about your, um, about your talk is there's, there's no one method that works. You have to find a method that works for you. Now, we were talking about risk, and I, I personally invest a, a great deal in speculative junior mining companies. And I think, in my case, the biggest risk is not necessarily political risk or geological risk. In my case, the biggest risk, excuse my language, is bullshitters. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of them in mining and also incompetence on, on behalf of management. And so, you know, my kind of filters, if you like, have to be most alert to that. But going back to what I was saying about um, you have to find what works for you, it was interesting to see that um, how uh, Templeton's performance uh suddenly improved or not suddenly but 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 noticeably improved as soon as he moved to a beach in the bahamas yes that's true that's a fascinating thing about his his career i think uh, he ran this mutual fund for 18 uh, for about 18 years before he moved to the bahamas he'd retired basically he was in in the 60s sold his other business couldn't sell his one remaining fund uh, but he wanted to go and live in the bahamas with his wife and enjoy his retirement uh, and so what he did was he started running this fund, this mutual fund, uh, from the beach in the Bahamas. He would go out every morning for an hour or two hours with a bunch of uh, newspapers, and uh, which were, by the way, 24 hours out of date, uh, and a bunch of analyst reports. And he would sit there and he'd read through looking for, for good stock ideas. Uh, he didn't have any brokers ringing him up. He didn't have any instant uh, news from the front line of the market, you know, what was going up, what was going down. No Vancouver promoters selling him stuff. No Vancouver promoters selling him stuff, absolutely not. Um, pure, simple, long-term analysis of stocks, looking for things that were cheap. That was all he did. He didn't have any additional advantage that anybody else had, but he actually could concentrate in isolation from all the noise that we know makes up the daily, the daily grind, if you like, of, of the markets. 
uh, and his performance improved dramatically. He, he started beating the market by 6% a year and kept it up for about 20 years without doing more than two hours a day, which I think is a pretty uh, interesting uh, uh, commentary on, uh, on what uh, most other fund managers do. Yeah, the the uh, futures trader Mark Shipman has a similar method. He'll only look at the markets on a Saturday morning when they're shut so as to filter out the noise. Yeah, well, that's very sensible. That's very sensible because, after all, what is, in, what is investing? What is it? It's, it's basically buying cheap and selling high. We all know that's, that's the basis of investment. Um, so what you should do is, and what I think people like Templeton did, they concentrate very much on that single question. You know, is this thing cheap on the basis that I use to analyze these things? Buffett is exactly the same. He says, you know, wait for the fat pitch. You know, there will come things. If you do nothing at all, there will come things, and you're not worried about the fact that somebody else has done better this year or somebody else has made, you know, 200% out of investing in some exotic thing. Just wait for the opportunity when the market has got it wrong and where you can buy something for a fraction of its value. And if you do that and hold it for long enough, you will make money. You may have to hold it for five years, but, hey, that's not so bad. Very good. Now, um, uh, just changing the subject slightly, Jonathan, as, as, uh, as we uh, wrap this up, um, I want to just talk about the kind of environment that we're in. Uh, you posted a few charts, a few long-term charts of the uh, government bond markets and the uh, commodities market. Um, you think this is a pretty tough environment in which to, to make money. So why don't we discuss the cu- current financial environment and what you see as opportunities at the moment? Okay. Um, well, I'm old enough to have been following the markets now for quite a long time, unfortunately, uh, something between 30 and 40 years, I suppose. Um, and I started out in the 1970s when uh, things were very, very bad. Um, and in my lifetime, I've seen the greatest bull market of, of the 20th century, followed by a period of uh, uh, tracking sideways. And now we're entering into what I think is quite dangerous territory. And there are a number of reasons for that. But essentially, I think as we all know, the Western world, the developed world, has got itself into a terrible pickle. Uh, and worse than that, it did it with its eyes open. I don't think you can uh, absolve the central bankers of our time or the, or the governments of our time from uh, blame for what the mess we're in, which is that we have got ourselves in a position where we have overborrowed to a massive extent uh, and we're trying to fix the problem by making the problem worse. And that is a very dangerous environment for any investor. Uh, added to which, we've had a 30-year... Uh, bull market in in bonds you know if you bought a a government bond 30 years ago and done nothing else you would have actually beaten the equity market and made a very handsome return over that period all because we've been living through a period of disinflation of falling interest rates for which there are many reasons we can talk about the Chinese emergence of the emerging economies and so on Um, lots of reasons for that technological change as well uh, and government policy at the beginning very benign now very the opposite of benign we are trying to put our finger in the dike and stop what we have to do, which is to face up to the fact that we have overborrowed and our, a lot of our economies in the West are in a terrible mess. And that is not going to be an easy environment in which to make money. Oh, dear. Very worrying. Um, final comment. I wonder if you noticed this. Um, you know, we're at Warwick University. There must have been, I don't know, 150, 200 students in the audience uh, looking for investment ideas and, and uh, looking to find out about uh, making their, work, their way in the world of investments. Warwick, in the Midlands, in the heart of 
of, of England, I would say 65% of that audience were Asian, another 10 or 15% Eastern European, and in terms of kind of native English speakers, less than 20%. I mean, in many ways that's wonderful, but if you think of demographics being destiny, boy is, boy is destiny or, or, or financial um, progress headed east. Yes, I think that's true, and I think uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's uh, just part of the cycle of history. We, you know, we had a very good run for a long time, and now uh, these guys are having a very good run. I think also, I mean, there's nothing wrong with us as a country. It, you know, education has become one of our main export industries, um, and uh, we should uh, encourage that. I think uh, we benefit from it in the long run. Um, obviously, if we were squeezing out our own uh, students from actually getting a decent education, that would be uh, not that would be worrying. But we weren't squeezing out our, our... There were empty seats there. There was plenty more room for, yeah. for locals to come. They just chose not to. I mean, my main concern about the audience was that how many of them wanted to go into the investment banking industry. I mean, I think <laughs> the investment banking industry is uh, is basically shot. Um, I mean, it will survive, uh, but its, its business model is, is, uh, is pretty um, uncertain at the best of times. And I don't see going forward. I mean, I think that uh, banking of all kinds is, a, is, a, is a basically a very simple business. You uh, you know you buy money uh, you borrow money at one rate and lend it out at another rate, and you make a you make a, a profit on the difference. Um, but in an environment where we're not going to get falling interest rates for much longer, um, it's going to become much harder to be a banker. And investment bankers who you know take half the uh, the profits that their firms make uh, for things that they're on the whole by and large not always but by and large they haven't actually earned i don't see that's a sustainable business model of the future and i rather wish that all these students would be going into other things where they're more likely in 20 years time to look back and say my god i made a good decision not to go into investment banking but i went into manufacturing or into uh, or into agriculture or something like that instead final thing i wanted to touch on you said that uh, uh, buffett um templeton and uh, bolton had three qualities and one of the the third quality that they all had that one should look for in someone who's in, in managing your money was integrity uh why don't we just talk about that for a second as we yeah, close that's, that's very very important in fact that's the most important thing i think about investment i mean looking after other people's money whether you're managing it advising on it or whatever you're doing it is well you can say it's a service industry it's certainly not a product industry which it has become in the last 20 years and it is a fiduciary responsibility you have to have responsibility for looking after the best interests of your clients and i think that there's some of that has been lost in the last 20 years we went in a world where everything was product driven sales driven and the client has actually slipped down the list of what uh, of what is most important for many firms um, and i think as a consequence of that why i say integrity is so important is that you obviously want people who are talented looking after your money. You obviously want people who work hard and, and do their homework. But most of all, if you haven't got the third quality, which is integrity, in other words, the, the idea that they will look after, put your interests first, not their own, then you're going to have problems because that combination is lethal. You've got someone who's very clever, very hardworking, but actually working for himself rather than for you. That is a very dangerous combination. And I think uh, we, the sooner we get rid of that uh, particular model, the better we'll all be. Very good. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much. You've got a, a new book coming out. Why don't you give that a quick plug? <laughs> well, I have written a book about um, about John Templeton. Uh, I've co-written it actually with a with a fund manager, a very good fund manager called Sandy Nairn, who worked for John Templeton for ten years in the nineteen nineties, uh, who now runs his own uh, successful business in Edinburgh. Uh, and what we've done is we've gone back and we looked at um, there've been lots of books about Templeton. Uh, some of them, I have to say, are sort of slightly uh, verging on the on hagiography. 
uh, we've gone back as professional investors, looked at what his track record was, looked at his methods, and tried to explain why they why they actually work so well. Um, I, I can't say that we've uh, cracked all the answers, but I think we've got some of them. And, and um, it's been a very interesting experience. It's a hundredth anniversary of his birth in uh, this year, which is why the book is coming out this year. And um, we're hoping that uh, some people will hark back to these rather old-fashioned virtues of uh, of hard work, thrift, and integrity. Very good. And what's it called? It's called Templeton's Way with Money, and it's uh, being published by Wiley's in the States in April. Okay. And do you have a website, Jonathan? I do. My website is called uh, independent-investor.com, and on there you'll find all sorts of uh, things that I've written in the past. I've been writing for a long time, and so uh, you can even find some columns from the 1990s, which... Uh, which I think is still there reading, but uh, not all of them, perhaps. Well, your hit rate is about to go up massively as a result of appearing on this sure, show. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Davis, thank you very much. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 